The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Okay, good to see you. Man. Yes, great to be back for another week. Uh, we have some great viewer questions. Uh, Father, we have some follow-up questions to uh, our, a previous program that we did uh, where we talked about prayer. <clears throat> and I'd like to start with some of those. Um, in particular, uh, we had a viewer uh, mention how you talked about the idea of saints in heaven not needing faith or hope, uh, but only possessing charity. Uh, and one of our viewers asked uh, if if the saints in heaven have no faith or hope, then how could they pray? Uh, it seems, she says, that uh, they must have faith because they believe that God hears their prayers, and they must have hope because they hope that God will answer their prayers. So uh, could you clarify that a bit, Father? Do the saints in heaven have, have any kind of faith or hope? They do not have the supernatural virtues of faith or hope. Okay. They do not. They cannot. Uh, the supernatural virtue of faith... <clears throat> is a special uh, habit of power given by God, a supernatural, supernatural habit or power given by God whereby we believe things that we cannot know, that we cannot understand, right? Supernatural truths that God has revealed, and we believe them on the strength of God's own credibility, God, God revealing them. The saints in heaven see God face to face, uh, we have a number of references to that, notably St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so they do not need the virtue of faith, the supernatural virtue of faith, in order to believe what they actually see and what they actually know. And they say what they know is they know God, they know him face to face. They don't know him infinitely, perfectly, because they don't have infinite intellects to know infinite truth, infinitely, but uh, nonetheless, they do see God and they know God face to face, as St. Paul says. Um, and uh, as far as hope goes, I mean, hope, again, is the, uh, the, the trust, really, that what Christ has, has promised uh, will be granted, and in heaven it is granted. So in hope, we, we have the possession of all that is good in terms of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. We have God, possession of God himself. And uh, that union with God is so perfect, it can't be lost, uh, can't be forsaken or impaired in any way. So again, you know, there is that, not that, that hope to have in heaven to have Almighty God. Now, what is happening here is the, the questioner is using the word faith and using the word hope in a different sense. Not really talking so much about the supernatural virtue of faith or the supernatural virtue of hope. Um, 
without getting into a, a long dissertation on the subject, though, I think it, it might be adequate, I hope, to say that, yes, the saints are asked by us here on earth to pray uh, with us and pray for us, to pray on our behalf, not to pray in place of us, certainly, because we are not asking them to pray instead of us. We're asking them to pray with us and unite their prayers with us before God there in heaven for some good thing that we're asking, but which we submit to God's wisdom and God's will, you know, to know that it is good. But the saints in heaven know what God will do with their prayer. They will, they will in fact, uh, speak as it were on our behalf. Um, but they're not going to ask God to grant us something that is harmful and that would somehow impede our uh, getting to heaven, right? And they know what that is. I mean, they can see God's will for us very well. They, they, they see it eternity now through the very mind of God. And so they know what God is going to do with their prayers. And they know that God will do something beautiful and more worthy than what we ask. They know that. So, you know, they, hes- they do not hesitate. But the fact is, if you say, well, when the saints in heaven pray for us, is it that they really don't know what the, they're, whether they're asking for something good or bad for us, really? But that, that they do not know how God is going to respond to that prayer? The answer is no, they, they do understand that. They know that. They see that. They know what the result will be of that prayer of theirs. And so, uh, in that sense, they can even offer it more fervently than we do, right? Because we are uh, half-hearted in our prayers. We are uncertain in our prayers. Uh, we, um, we recall the expression of the gospel, oh, you have little faith, in terms of asking for God's blessings. And that's how we ask them. Um, they, the, songs, the saints don't ask in that way. They don't have to. Um, why? Because they're not relying on uh, faith looking through uh, the glass in a dark manner, as St. Paul says. They see God face to face. So they can pray with, with a complete self-abandon, as it were, uh, and asking God's will to be done for us, which is the greatest blessing they can ask for. And uh, in terms uh, of our unworthiness, they are willing to uh, lend their, their perfect love for God to support us in asking for all that is good. And uh, so you see, in the same sense that they don't pray with hope, in the sense that there's, they're just hoping that God will grant this because they don't know that he will, um, and they don't know what they're asking for. The point is that they, they know that God will take their prayer, united with our prayer, and God will grant us um, not only his blessing, but he will, and not only uh, grant us merely what we're asking for, but will, will actually grant us something much greater okay. than even what we could conceive of asking for. Okay. It might be winning the lottery, <laughs> It might be. I mean, if, if, it, if it serves God's purpose, you know, for the salvation of souls, yes, I mean, well, saint could ask for that. But what is that in comparison with sanctifying grace? It's nothing. What, what is that with, for the conversion of sinners? Relative to that, it's nothing. Right? Uh, 
So the point is that God knows the, the value of, of prayers, and he knows what we need for everlasting life, and nothing can compare with that. So we, we should, well, that we could pray as the saints do, but we're hampered now because we're limited. And because of those limitations now, we, we need um, to see through a glass in a dark manner by faith, and we need to hope for the things we don't yet have and fear we might never have because of our unworthiness. The saints don't have those limitations. Okay. Not when they pray. Very good. All right, uh, another question about prayer. Uh, we, of course, talked a lot about uh, prayer and turning one's mind and one's attention to God. Uh, but one of our viewers asked uh, what one should do in situations where they cannot give their full attention to God. One example they provided was uh, perhaps when, when one is driving on the road. Uh, should one pray uh, in that circumstance, if knowing that, uh, for a fact that they cannot devote their full attention to the prayer, is God still pleased with the, uh, at least the, the desire that they have to pray? When they cannot give full attention, <clears throat> they should. Our Lord says, "Pray always," right? He says, "Pray always." What did he mean by that? Does he want us all to become hermits who do nothing but pray, in the sense that as though prayer excludes any other activity, a body or mind? Um, no, of course not. What does our Lord mean then when he says pray always? Is it possible to pray always even when you're driving and everything else? Yes, it is. Um, I mean, Tom, you know as well as I do, perhaps better than I do, that as we're driving, we're thinking about a lot of things. Right? As you're driving along, you're not constantly monitoring uh, the sound of the engine. You're not constantly monitoring the, monitoring the mile markers. You're not constantly monitor, monitoring... Uh, the gas gauge, the speedometer, right? I mean, you do occasionally take stock of these things when they're necessary. But as you're driving along, you know, mothers are, you know, taking, thinking of their, talking to their children. Um, others, uh, unfortunately, you're listening to the radio, right? Who knows what's coming across that? Talk radio, heaven only knows what's coming across that, but the music even worse in many cases. But our minds are, are made that way, that we don't have to be uh, constantly, intensely uh, focused, um, obsessively focused on the immediate thing at hand. Um, we have these very nice modernism, the synthesis of all heresies, cups, and we know very well what it is to have a nice cup of coffee or a cup of tea and be sipping it as we're having a discussion, even on theology. But we're not thinking, I'm picking up the cup and I'm putting it to my lips and I'm going to tilt it so it pours the liquid into my throat. Now I have to think about the liquid. I have to then take a conscious act to swallow it, you know. And then after that, well, I'd better concentrate on digesting it. Our minds are not made like that. Our minds are made uh, by God to be much more uh, versatile <laughs> than that, right? Um, we don't have to focus on these automatic things. Thank goodness. So it is possible to pray while we're driving. The old, the old Jesuit's question was, <laughs> curiously enough, is it permissible to smoke while you're praying the breathing? And the answer was, no, that would be disrespectful. Then the question was, but can you pray while you're smoking? And the answer, well, you can pray while you're smoking. That would be very pious. Right? So... Um, I don't mean to, I don't know why I brought that up. <laughs> but anyway, just, you know, you can get kind of convoluted about the whole thing. If anybody could do it, the Jesuits could do it. 
But in any case, the, the point being is, yes, it's very good that in all that we do, we pray. When St. Teresa, the child Jesus, was mopping the floor hour after hour, she was praying. And her prayers were very, very beautiful and powerful prayers, wholehearted prayers, and she's just mopping the floor. She's going into the closets and facing those spiders that she detested so much. But she used this as an opportunity to pray, turn her mind and heart to God, too. I mean, it's a matter of turning your mind and your heart to God. So uh, my somewhat inadequate answer would be, absolutely, we, we need to, to pray uh, always and to, uh, in a sense, train ourselves to be mindful of God in everything we do. Everything we do should uh, be motivated by a love for God. And when I say everything I do, I mean everything we do should be motivated by a love for God. We pray the morning offering uh, to start out the day. <coughs> and we consecrate all of our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of the day. <clears throat> Even though we might be distracted by a lot of things that happen that require a, a focusing of our attention on, like if you're an engineer, a mathematical problem, um, if you're a chef on, you know, the greedy ingredients, which you're mixing there to make sure they're safe, let alone they taste good, or just uh, changing a baby's diaper, whatever other, other things. At first, we may find that we have to focus intensely on these things to the exclusion of other thoughts, just because <coughs> these things are so, so complex. But for the most part, what we do during the day is not that complex, that we can't also be mindful of God and uh, be thinking on multiple levels, including the presence of God and our presence within Him and His love for us. So no, we don't have to be on our knees in the church to be praying. Uh, we should actually um, uh, you know, be able to put aside all other thoughts while we're kneeling in prayer in the church. But we should be able to take those thoughts of God into the world, and they should actually pervade everything we do. Okay. To the extent uh, possible. Mm -hmm. Father, what about uh, when we are praying for someone else? Where should our attention uh, be when we are offering prayers for another person? For example, if, we're, if we are to say a Hail Mary for a, a friend or a relative, should we focus on the actual words of the Hail Mary? Should we focus on that, uh, that individual? Relative. Yeah. <laughs> where, where should our focus be? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, that's, that's a good question, but uh, I, I have a suspicion about the previous question, if I may ask. Yes, right. That there's an unasked question behind that, and that is, if we have the choice to pray the rosary during the drive to work in the morning, or, the cho or on the other hand, to pray it while we're not driving, and we could just actually, you know, uh, take the time beforehand to pray it while we're not driving. Is it just as good, as it were, to pray the rosary while we're driving and say, okay, but I, I have to drive to work anyway, 20 minutes on the way to work, I'll just get rid of it, I'll get, take care of my rosary and get it out of the way, you know, if that's the attitude people have. And, uh, I mean, obviously the answer to that is pray when you can, the best you can pray. If it's a matter of turning your mind and your heart to God, and you can do it uh, under better circumstances, then, then do that, obviously, right? Don't choose to God, give, give to God the scraps of your time and say, well, 
if I have to, you know, spend the time going to work, I might as well pray the rosary and get that, as it were, get it out of the way. So then I have whatever other free time I have during the day to do other things that I'd rather think about and rather do. Um, that's, not, that's not the right attitude. So if, if the approach is, well, I mean, it was perfectly okay to pray the rosary while I'm driving to work, then uh, that's great. I'll just um, do that so that I don't have to do it any other time. Well, that's not the right spirit either. Okay. Do you think uh, people sometimes think like that, though? Oh, yes, of course. You think so? Okay. Yes. Uh, I suspected some people. <laughs> people like anyway, yes. not you, though. But in any case, but if one is thinking, well, I'm praying to work, I'm, I'm driving to work, and I could be praying to work, I'm driving to work, what else am I going to be doing? This is the best use of my time and my thoughts, so I'm going to take whatever I can to... Uh, Pray the rosary on the way to work anyway. Not, in other words, it, as an excuse not to pray the rosary at a time, but this is a very good use of that time. So, now, uh, with regard to praying for someone, should we be, if we're praying for Aunt Matilda, let's say, who has gout, and I'm praying for God to relieve her of her gout, should I be praying the, uh, a decade of the rosary thinking of Aunt Matilda's gout? and trying to wish it away? Uh, or should I be focusing my attention on Almighty God and His mercy? Um, well, a prayer really is raising your heart and your mind to God, as St. Augustine said, which means turning your attention to God and His presence and His goodness and His mercy, turning your affection to God and His goodness and His love for us. So, you could be praying a decade of the rosary and uh, focusing on Aunt Matilda's gout and not pray at all. Insofar as all you're thinking about, if all you're thinking about is Aunt Matilda and her gout, um, really all you've got to go on to offer is your good intentions and taking the time to devote to thinking uh, about Aunt Matilda and her, her un, 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 discomfort. No, the, <coughs> if, I'm sorry. If you're going to pray, then pray. And dedicate the prayer to that intention. But, you know, it's, that would be a, a distraction. The, the person you're praying for in your mind, though, then would be a distraction insofar as that was the focus of your intention. And uh, you were thinking about that instead of God. Prayer is raising your, your heart and your mind to God, and that's what you have to do in order to pray at all. Now, what should you be doing? Let's say if you're praying a uh, decade of the rosary for Aunt Matilda, what should you be thinking of? The, the, the mystery of the rosary. The mystery of the rosary, right? Because in the mystery of the rosary, we are thinking about God, His goodness, what God has done, and God's reason for doing it, His love for us. So these mysteries of the rosary provide for themselves the material that we are supposed to be pondering at that time, right? And we could take that on to other um, uh, things too. I mean, if you're praying the uh, Litany of the Sacred Heart and you're offering it for Aunt Matilda or Uncle Parkohar, you could, uh, uh, you know, choose to think about nothing but Uncle Parkohar at the time. But actually what you're supposed to be doing is thinking of the prayer. And the invocation you're making to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, that should be the focus of the prayer. Yeah. If you focus only on the individual that you're praying for, then you're actually taking away from them 
you know, as it were, depriving them of the power of the prayer. Uh, all the more so, I mean, if you're, you're praying for a red Ferrari, and what are you, you know, if you focus on the red Ferrari, that's it. Uh, obviously, that's not, that's not prayer. Right. Right. Uh, and Matilda and Uncle Farquhar are much more worthy of our thought and our attention and our affection than the red Ferrari, but nonetheless, uh, that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about our thoughtfulness, our mindfulness and affection for Almighty God mm -hmm. and His mindfulness and, and love for us. Mm -hmm. Father, should one, uh, one of our viewers asked, should one prioritize uh, their attention during prayer over uh, some form of, of suffering. The example they gave is if they were uh, practicing prayer and they were kneeling and uh, they were being being bothered by the pain of, of kneeling down. Should they should they sit in order to relieve that pain in order to focus on the prayer better, or should they simply offer up that uh, that suffering, the pain that's caused by kneeling down, uh, in, in lieu of a of a more focused prayer? Well, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, it depends on what they're there to do. If they're there to make themselves suffer, um, and that's what they're offering to God, they're suffering. I mean, they could uh, remain kneeling. And uh, uh, unfortunately, though, uh, they might be offering the, the inferior thing and not offering the superior thing, right? I mean, someone might be kneeling there and say, I've been kneeling here for four hours and my knees are killing me, but I'm still going to offer this as a suffering to God. And they, they say, well, what are you offering? Well, I'm offering the perseverance and the pain. And, um, well, what are you thinking of? I'm thinking that I'm in pain. I'm in terrible pain. <laughs> okay. Well, are you thinking, uh, rather, using that as a springboard or a focus on our Lord's suffering for you? And is that helping you to focus not on your suffering, but on our Lord's suffering for you. No, no, all I can think about is the pain I'm in right now. And uh, I'm just, I just keep saying, uh, you know, God, take my pain, take my pain, because that's all, you know, what I am, I'm offering you right now. What would be the more perfect thing? Well, obviously, to think about our Lord's suffering and to be moved to a greater love for Him. Um, so, you know, these, these things we, we offer to God, sometimes we can even <clears throat> offer them out of pride, you know. Some, uh, someone can... Well, you know, you kind of, in a sense, you think about uh, uh, those who prided themselves on how much fasting they did and how many Hail Marys they said and how, or how many rosaries they said, and so on and so forth. But they, they use that in a sense of saying, well, I'm, I'm so holy, like the Pharisees. Um, and when they, when that's all it is, is to them, it's sort of like, well, I'm accusing, accumulating brownie points uh, in heaven and on earth with others who admire me. Well, again, you think about the Pharisee in the temple who was talking about all the good things he did and all the bad things he didn't do. And all he was doing was glorifying himself. We have to be very careful about that. And the publican in the back was truly praying because he turned his mind and his heart to God. He was thinking about his unworthiness. But he was thinking about, about God's goodness and God's great worthiness. That's why the man was continually asking for mercy because he was casting himself on God's mercy because he saw he was speaking to a merciful God. And that was his real focus. You know? His focus ultimately was not his unworthiness, but God's superworthiness and that God deserves so much better. And he repented that he hadn't given God's but. God truly deserves so much better. And this man went home to his house forgiven of terrible sins. Whereas the Pharisee went home 
And not only was he not given any credit for anything he'd done, but the gospel says he went home unforgiven. And it's, you know, one might say, well, wait a minute. All the Pharisee did was talk about all the good things he did, and they were good things. Fasting, tithing, and so on. And he talked about the bad things he didn't do. And the gospel nowhere says that he was lying, that he really did those things. Kind of assumes that he didn't do these things. He didn't do all the bad things the publican had done. So when the gospel says he went home and he was not justified, what was the injustice? What was he guilty of? We know what the, what the publican was guilty of. The Pharisee was willing to tell us what the publican it was up to. And the publican is back there saying, yes, I am a sinner. I'm not worthy. But what did the Pharisee do? The Pharisee was, that, he was taking credit for all the good that he did. As, and he was just kind of glorifying himself under the guise of prayer. So we have to be very careful about that. Is it bad to offer uh, our pain and discomfort? No, because that's a matter of offering our patience. And patience is really an act of adoration. The real virtue of patience, motivated by faith and open charity, is a, an actual act of adoration of God. It's an act of adoration of the divine will. So that every single act of patience we do during the day, whether we're on the road, back, we're back driving again, or uh, whatever else we have to put up with, if we, if we, through faith and open charity, are willing to maintain control of our, our passions, especially our passion of anger, and are willing to, with weakness and mildness and gentleness and so on, deal with it, um, that's an act of adoration to Almighty God. You can offer it to God many times a day. The wonder our Lord said is by your patience that you will possess your souls, right? Um, and uh, that he who perseveres to the end will be saved because perseverance is an extension of patience, you might say, right? So um, I would say in a case like that, if, someone, if someone's purpose really is, for example, to pray, and their prayer is to turn their mind and their heart, their attention and their affection to God, if they find something, a distraction, like they're sitting on a tack or kneeling on a tack, and what's going through their mind is, ouch, ouch, and they find it, it's a constant distraction from their prayer, take the tack off the kneeler or off the seat and just, again, devote your attention and your affection to Almighty God. Pray, raise your mind and heart to God. So if that discomfort is a distraction, then make it go away. Now, there are limitations to that. You're a religious sister or a seminarian in the seminary, and you're chanting the divine office in common, and you find that you're, you're kneeling or you're standing or whatever, and it's uncomfortable, your feet hurt, your knees hurt. Well, you can't just at that point say, well, my feet hurt, I'm going to sit down. You know, that's, you're praying in the community there, and you have to respect that. So in a case like that, you really have to somehow change the venue of your, your thought and even of your sore feet or whatever and think, well, okay, I'm not going to stick out and be a distraction to the others because my feet hurt. I'm not going to sit down and choir as a religious sister um, um, because I'm, I'm, I find standing is a bit of a, of a, is uncomfortable and it's a distraction to me because if I sit down and kind of drop out, I'll 
be, be a distraction for everybody else. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find a way, by the grace of God, to turn my distraction into a, an ability to focus more on the goodness of God. So see, someone like that, like a St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, might have a nun uh, kneeling next to her, and it's a real nun. These are cloistered nuns, not just congregation sisters. These are nuns, actually, who are cloistered. And the elderly, elderly nun is banging her rosary beads on the pew next to her, and poor St. Teresa is there trying to focus and trying to meditate. But she hears this, well, it must have sounded at the choir like banging of a wrecking ball. <laughs> Everything gets, the, the sound gets intensified the more quiet it is. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, but St. Teresa took that, and she didn't snatch the rosary away, <laughs> she didn't tell a sister during recreation the next day when they can talk, would you please stop banging those rosary beds? It's, it's really distracting to me. He found a way to turn that into a kind of celestial music so that it actually was an aid to her meditation. Can that be done? Yes, it can be done. Okay. The point is, ultimately, I mean, if you find the pain or whatever it is to be a distraction to your prayer, then to the extent that you have control over it, yeah, put it into it, and then pray uh, as well as you can. Um, if you don't have control over what it is, I mean, if, if you're praying the rosary and they've got some road work going outside and the, the street sewer is going by or they're jackhammering out on the highway, then uh, try to find a way to turn that to your prayerful advantage. Um, you know, you think about uh, our Lord, what he had to endure, uh, the yammering of the, um, you know, the blasphemies while he was hanging on the cross, or the impudence of, um, you know, the Pharisees and so on. There are ways to direct our minds and thoughts to God, even under the most, um, you know, auspicious circumstances. Okay. Comes down to a matter of whether you can handle it and it be, and turn the distraction into a, a benefit or whether you can't, and it just is an out-and-out <clears throat> distraction. In that case, don't let it be. All right. That's very good. That's very helpful. Thank you. Well, I hope so, Tom. Okay. I, sometimes I try to get the words out and express uh, what I'm thinking as clearly as I'd like. But if you can tr translate what I'm saying into English, that's, a, that's quite a feat. <laughs> I think so. Uh, well, speaking of translating, Father, um, last question on, on prayer. Um, some of our viewers have said that uh, they have heard that prayers that are prayed in Latin are particularly effective uh, because our viewers say they have heard that Latin is the devil's least favorite language. Uh, so if we know prayers in Latin, we should pray them in Latin. Have you heard anything like this before? I have, yes. I've heard exorcists point that out, <clears throat> that uh, the Latin language does have a certain um, power uh, over Satan, you know. Um, is it true? Well, there, there are those who are exorcists who claim it's true, and I believe, I believe it is true because the Church has given us, um, in the old Rituale uh, Romanum, the, the, the book of blessings and, and exorcisms on the Church, the Church gives us her ceremonies in Latin. And um, I think that language is very very um, agreeable to God, and I think it is very disagreeable to Satan. Now, that being said, I'd better clarify. You have the Car Carmina Barana, 
the Carmina Barana, where the old drinking songs uh, in the university days uh, back in the Middle Ages, right? They, they, the students would get together in the taverns and they'd sing these Carmina Barana in, uh, in Latin and uh, had a great time doing it, but they weren't necessarily edifying or very uh, pleasing to God just because they were in Latin. I mean, you can say all kinds of awful things in Latin, too, you know. There were, there were some pretty awful works written in Latin. And, um, you know, even I understand that uh, necromancers and wizards like to uh, cast their spells in Latin, right? Uh, so that gives them some kind of added power. So um, we have to realize that la language... Any language is a human thing. Remember, I mean, mankind spoke a common language until the Tower of Babel. And then, um, just to humble, <laughs> humble the human race, uh, as they were trying to build their ziggurat or whatever they were trying to, they build their way to heaven so they could take it by storm. Um, God put an end to that just by mixing up their language and all the languages and developed. So uh, one might even say the multiplicity of languages was not a good thing, you know, in its origins, anyway. It was uh, punishment for sin. But, um, so we have to be careful in making of it more than it is. I mean, language is language. But St. Paul does talk about speaking in the, in the languages of men, men and of angels. He talks about angels communicating, too. But he says that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have charity... I'm becoming sound of sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, I'm just banging on something. You know, that's it has no more significance than that. So not just the tongues of men, but the tongues of angels too. Uh, what is it that that makes the sound of any language pleasing to God or displeasing to the devil? It would be charity. And so here in, in the Latin language, you have a language that has been used by the church to express divine worship in the most powerful way possible at the altar, the Holy Mass. And uh, have graced, that language has graced the churches for centuries and centuries. Now there you have the perfect charity of the, the Son of God offering himself in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So that, that has to add great power, you know, uh, supernaturally even, uh, in fact, the pontiffs of the church have told us that Latin, in a sense, has uh, char characteristics that are similar to the marks of the church itself. You know, we're told that the, the four marks of the true church are unity, right, oneness, holiness, catholicity, and apostolicity, meaning that the true church established by Christ must be like him in being one, one true church, as there is one true founder of the one true church, who is, and that one true founder is the one true center, the one true God, right? The one true Messiah and Savior, Redeemer of mankind. So the church he founded must be one true church. It must be holy insofar as it has the character of its founder. And uh, that doesn't mean that everyone who belongs to the church is holy or always holy. I mean, let's face it, our Lord said he came to call sinners to begin with. So obviously, when you start with uh, candidate to be a member of the church, you're starting with a sinner. And that's the first qualification, you might say, except for our Blessed Mother, of course, and she was preserved by a special privilege for that. So, um, 
So our Lord came to call sinners, but he sanctifies them. The church has the power to sanctify them. The power of the sacraments, the power of the holy sacrifice. And so the church is holy and has a power to make holy. Uh, the church um, is uh, Catholic, meaning simply that it is for all mankind, and no one can be saved without Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior. No one else can save uh, the human soul from hell, but Jesus Christ himself, his merits, sacrificial merits on the cross, and the sanctifying grace that he alone can give. And so that is what we mean by Catholicity. That means that men cannot seek a Savior anywhere else. There is no other name given to us under heaven by which men must be saved than that of Jesus Christ, right? And his divine person. And the fourth mark is that of apostolicity. In other words, the true Church of Christ must trace its actual living history back to the apostles and must hold in common with them what they taught and how, what they practiced, right? The, the faith they taught and the religion they practiced. The true church must be able to draw a direct line back to them. These are the four marks of the church. Well, you find these echoed, in a sense, in the Latin language. Um, sure, over the course of time, Latin did um, undergo the natural changes and developments, right? You read medieval Latin. It's not the same as Ciceronian Latin, by any means. And, and yet there is a certain unity in the language. Um, that follows all the way through its history, especially the ecclesiastical Latin. There's a certain unity of that language that is remarkable, and continuity of that. Um, it's a beautiful thing that you know. It's it it's truly is a Latin tongue. You, you know, we talk about the various idioms that spin off languages, but there's a remarkable unity in the Latin language. And, um, but you find also the holiness of the Latin language, and I mentioned that before, in terms of the thoughts that were expressed in that language. This is the, the, the language of scholars and saints, you know, um, going back to the time of our Lord. I mean, it's, it's uh, quite magnificent. One can make an argument for Greek also. Of course, the language in which the um, New Testament scriptures are written and into which the Old Testament scriptures were translated miraculously in the Septuagint. So Greek, Koine Greek, has a certain character too. And you find the fathers of the church and the doctors of the church writing often in Greek as well. But here, for us, in the Roman rite, in the Latin rite of the church, we find the writings of St. Jerome, St. Augustine, and uh, so many other great fathers of the church. Uh, we read them day by day in the, in the divine office, in the breviary, there's a richness there. And they're writing about uh, the faith and the hope and the love of God. So there's a certain sanctity that comes with that. It carries a message of sanctity and sanctification. Latin also has a uh, Catholicity insofar as that it really was the language. Chore, I mean Greek, um, uh, Greek was the language of the, of the educated class. In, the, in our Lord's own time. I mean, even Peter, when he left Rome, he went to Antioch for, and was bishop there for seven years. And that was a preparation for what was to come next. He was called to Rome to defend the faith, and he spent the last 25 years of his life in Rome. What was he doing? He was preaching. What was he preaching? The gospel. In what language? In Greek. It was recorded by St. Mark. That's St. Mark's gospel. 
So, yes, Greek does have this certain character of, uh, of universality in that regard, the, the language of the gospel. <clears throat> but one has to realize that the Latin really became the universal uh, language of the, of the Latin rite, of the Roman rite of the church. And in that, it went all over the world through her missionaries. And that was something that really distinguished the, the Roman rite of the church, the missionary efforts that went out. Uh, from Europe and, and here from America, the United States of America over all those centuries. America went from being mission territory to being uh, really a source of cultivation of the missions. A uh, very rich source of uh, missionary effort. And this was, uh, again, it was carried in Latin throughout the world. And so uh, we come to the final one, the Catholicity, and this, this shows, or apostolicity, Again, you know, you trace the writings of the church back into the, into the very apostolic times. And we see that in many of the early, early documents of the church. So, um, it is the, uh, you know, you look at the old um, sacramentaries of the church going back even to the Leonine sacramentary, sacramentary going back to 400, which uh, bore the, uh, the worship of the church and, you know, carried it one generation to the next and onward. Um, well, in any case, I think you get the point. There's, some, there's something about Latin that it has been at the service of God in such a powerful way for so long. I think the devil does hate it. I think he does hate it. When you, when you, I think we human beings can, can kind of associate that with the fact that we associate certain languages with certain things. French and Latin, uh, Italian, and so on. We we see a certain character in those languages. Um, you know, during World War II, uh, German was almost anathematized because they were the enemy, and people would hear German and they would recoil. Like you know, and now you know we know that German is a language, right? And it has its own strengths, and uh, it is carried also you know a, a great deal of good too, but we are almost uh, primed to react to languages in certain ways by what we conceive that they have brought us or what they've done to us or what they've been used to uh, benefit us or hurt us. Well, certainly Satan sees that in Latin and he, he actually has a, just a terrible, not only distaste for it, but a disgust for it because it it has a kind of an odor of sanctity about it. It it um, carries so many yeah, memories, <laughs> right, for him. Uh, exorcisms and prayers that have gone up against him and the holy sacrifice. I mean, Latin was one of those languages that was expressed right on the plaque of the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus Nazarenus at Exudeorum with the Greek and the Hebrew. Though he does associate certain languages with his own defeat. Um, and, and though also God, I mean, God himself can see and the saints can see in certain languages um, that these were those that served God's purposes, the purposes of faith, hope, and charity. So I guess it's, it's too late to give you the brief answer. I've already exceeded that. <laughs> But hopefully, uh, you know, I've kind of laid the groundwork for making the argument that, yes, I do believe that Latin has a certain sanctity. And those who make the effort to pray in Latin are doing well. And um, 
um, those, um, are, you know, are not only pleasing God, but I, I think they realize that Latin carries with it a kind, kind of the, the death knell of Satan's uh, work to condemn the soul so many times. And souls were saved by the power of the sacraments, notably penance and extreme unction, right? Mm -hmm. Snatched away from Satan's grasp. Uh, I think he does have a dread of Latin. Yeah. Those exorcists who say that they tried the English prayers and they didn't find them to be very efficacious, and they then pick up the Latin ritual and they begin to use it in earnest, and they find out that the devil begins to pay attention. Uh, he recognizes, uh, as it were, that voice you know, that he's heard over the centuries, and he... Uh, he, uh, he cowers before that. What did Charlemagne say, they say? Charlemagne is said to have said, don't be offended by it, I speak <clears throat> Latin to my God, French to my wife, and German to my dog. I don't know that Charlemagne said that. I don't recall. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the point is not to insult German. The point is to point out that Latin is something divine in his mind. The great Charlemagne. All right. Very interesting, Father. Thank you for that. Um, we have just a little bit of time left, and we had... Uh, By the way, I love the German language. <laughs> I speak it poorly, but I do speak it, and I'm very happy about that. And uh, find out very many excellent things that are written in German. I mean, we have such great luminaries as Saint Albert the Great, right, who <laughs> uh, was raised in German, right, at that time, teacher of Saint Thomas Aquinas. So, uh, please don't take that in any way as uh, some somehow put down with regard to the German language. I actually enjoy speaking the German language. It's uh, it's actually fun <laughs> to speak. <laughs> okay. All right, that's good. Uh, well, Father, one of our viewers wanted to know if you could uh, speak briefly on the topic of women and uh, choirs. Um, Pope St. Pius X uh, issued a, a motu proprio about sacred music, and uh, apparently there were some prohibitions in there regarding women and choirs and uh, in the traditional churches. Um, but it seems today, Father, we have a lot of women and choir. Even here at our own church, we have, uh, we have women in our choir every Sunday almost. Uh, could you speak a bit on this, Father? What are the what are the norms? What uh, what what did Pope Saint Pius X say about this, and where, mm. where do we stand? With well, this? we might be getting ourselves into trouble here, Tom. Because, uh -huh. uh, Pope Saint Pius X um, uh, wrote about this this very question of church music just uh, within three months of his election to the pontificate. He was elected Pope August fourth, nineteen o three. And by November of that same year, he was already writing <coughs> to the cardinal prefect of Rome and uh, sending out a motu proprio, that is not an encyclical, but actually a statement of his own, his own uh, choice, as it were, about uh, sacred music. So he obviously had this on his mind and had this on his mind for quite some time before he was elected Pope. <clears throat> and um, that document is called Tra le Solicitudine, 
It was in Italian, actually. And uh, it means among the solicitudes or the concerns or cares. Actually, it's translated, among the cares of the pastoral office. Not only of this supreme chair, which we, though unworthy, occupy through the inscrutable dispositions of providence, but of every local church, a leading one is without question that of maintaining and promoting the decorum of the house of God in which the august mysteries of religion are celebrated and where the Christian people assemble to receive the grace of the sacraments, to assist at the holy sacrifice of the altar, to adore the most august sacrament of the Lord's body, and to unite in the common prayer of the church in the public and solemn liturgical offices. That's one sentence. In Latin, you can do that. <coughs> you can express a sentence that long in Latin without losing the thread, just because of the structure of the Latin language. In English, it's tough to do, because you're stringing these phrases together just because of the structure of the language. It's hard to write one sentence that includes all those thoughts, which is why you're, when you're reading a translation from Latin to English, it's, you have to be ready for this, you have to be braced for it, because Latin can express itself in this way much more easily than English can without the mind getting lost. But the point is, St. Pius X begins this uh, motu proprio, by talking about the pastoral office that he has, the supreme pontiff, extending to the way the worship of God is conducted within the churches. And this takes him now to the ceremonies and especially the music employed in those ceremonies. St. Pius X was the son of a, of a, of a, of a postman, you know, and, um, you know, he, he didn't grow up listening to the, the concert halls and the, <laughs> the opera houses or anything of the kind, but he had a certain innate sense of beauty and the church's sense of beauty in terms of music. And he was very concerned about what he was hearing in the churches. Uh, he actually writes this and condemns it. He condemns what was, he was hearing in the churches he doesn't use the word bombastic, but you read what he says about what he's been hearing here, and you get the impression, well, what comes to mind is he's hearing this, these theatrical works that go on and on are more for entertainment than they are for prayer. And therefore, he says, they are distraction. And he even goes so far as to say, it is vain to hope that the blessing of heaven will descend abundantly upon us when our homage to the Most High, instead of ascending in the order of sweetness, puts into the hand of the Lord the scourges wherewith of old the Divine Redeemer drove the unworthy profaners from the temple. Did you follow that? Um, St. Pius X had a way of expressing himself that kind of got your attention, that we're supposed to be offering to God the sacrifice, rising in order of sweetness. Instead, we're inspiring him to want to drive us from the church as though we're profaning the church with this, this racket we're making here. He does acknowledge that a lot of good had been accomplished in the last previous 10 years, but he says not enough has been done. And what he was doing was he's laying down the general principles at first as to what church music should really be. It's very interesting to note in context of the Novus Ordo and what is the revolution 
um, that led up to Vatican II, took place at Vatican II, and now has been implemented in the name of Vatican II everywhere, right? Uh, through Vatican II, there's a revolution that has taken place. And uh, you can see that in the, the way the, the churches are constructed and what goes on in those churches right now. Uh, there, there are ceremonies, um, often secular, profane, even blasphemous and sacrilegious. The Novus Ordo, Bise, as Paul VI called it. And uh, the music that goes along with it, right? Even Cardinal, even Archbishop Vigano, curiously enough, you know who Archbishop Vigano is, right? Um, even he recently referred to the importance of returning to the traditional Mass and rejecting the new Mass that came out of Vatican II. And he said, one of the things that is an indicator of how corrupt the new Mass is, is the music that they can sing during that Mass, the so-called Mass, the new Mass, that they, they, they can bring in these forms of entertainment and they can bring in these forms of music that are totally worldly and they perfectly coincide with the new liturgy. And he said, that's an indication that this is a worldly thing and has no place in the Catholic Church. Interesting that he would make that comment now. You know, a man who so much of his life was saying the, the New Order and now publicly laments it and rejects it. I thought it was very interesting what he said anyway, how, how he, uh, he tied that in with the music, especially now we're talking about this, you know, with St. Pius X here. And uh, Pius X, St. Pius X gives us the general principles in Trale Solicitudine with regard to what Catholic music should be. And in fact, he says its principal office, or the principal role of the Catholic music, is to clothe with suitable melody the liturgical text proposed for the understanding of the faithful. It should add greater efficacy to the text of the worship, the, the words, actually, uh, which convey the meaning of what we're saying and what we're doing here. In order that through it, the faithful may be the more easily moved to devotion and better disposed for the reception of the fruits of grace belonging to the celebration of the most sacred mysteries of God. This is what the music is supposed to do. That's no minor task here, you know. And he uses the word to clothe these things, to clothe these things in appropriate beauty and, and raiment, you know, as though God is clothing the liturgy with this. And he says, therefore, in order to do this, sacred music must have qualities proper to the liturgy, and in particular, sanctity and goodness of form which will spontaneously produce the final quality of universality. So we're talking about sanctity, goodness of form, and universality. Now you see we're talking about, again, the marks, the marks of the church itself. So he talks, we, we learned from the pontiffs about the, the Latin language here, he's talking about the music itself should have these qualities. He says it has to be holy and exclude all profanity, profanity. Look, look at the modern mass and the stuff they bring in there. It's incredible, you know, what they bring in there. Movie, movie themes and all the rest, you know. They're trying to wring some spiritual message out of these worldly things. It shows the poverty. Uh, it's sad. But anyway, but he, he um, what would he say now about this, this Novus Ordo? I'm to think. 
talk about the knotted cords and driving the money changers out of the temple. He saw it coming. But uh, saw it coming. But if you look this up, and anyone can look this up, Trale Solicitudine on sacred music, November 22nd, Feast of St. Cecilia, uh, 1903. It's all there. It's there in black and white, and it's there in English for you to read, or if you read Italian, you could read it in Italian. It's perfectly fine. He says, uh, later on, I'm just going to take little excerpts from it, it will nevertheless be lawful on greater solemnities to alternate the Gregorian chant or the choir with the so-called falsi bordoni, or with verses similarly composed in a proper manner. Now, many of our listeners would not know what uh, falsi bordoni are. Uh, they're in French, called the faux bordon. But if you listen to recordings of the tray or the uh, the tenebrae, the tenebrae services for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of Holy Week, the Triduum, um, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, you'll hear our choir here singing at times the responsories in this full bourdon form. And you can see why Pink Pius X would make an exception for them because they're very, very impressive and they really do aid prayer. But in order, to, for those who don't know what they are, you, you have to go listen to them. You can look at the faux bourdon or these, but he calls uh, falsi bordoni, and um, and listen to them. And you see why Pope Pius X is not against all poly polyphonic music, quite the contrary. But he says you'd, it just can't be theatrical and uh, bombastic. It has to aid prayer. That's the key, that's the key of the of the music. The music has to coincide with the, the actual text and the message of prayer. Um, everything that is employed in divine worship in the churches should be an aid to prayer, not an obstacle to prayer. This is basically the whole point he's making here. Then he gets to the question of the singers, and by the way, that has to do with what your question is here, right? The singers who are allowed to sing. And... Um, well, maybe I could read this. Uh, it, it's not long. You have the, uh, still have the fortitude for it. <laughs> because he does pretty much answer the question there. He says, regarding the singers, with the exception of the melodies proffered to the celebrant at the altar and to the ministers, which must be always sung in Gregorian chant, by the minister he means the deacon and the subdeacon, and without accompaniment of the organ. All the rest of the liturgical chant belongs to the choirs of Levites, he says. And therefore, singers in the church, even when they are laymen, are really taking the place of the ecclesiastical choir. Hence, the music rendered by them must, at least for the greater part, retain the character of choral music. Choral music because it's a choir singing. Okay. So this is kind of addressing the idea of the individual solo. He says the primary character of a choir is to sing as a choir and not have, you know, primarily soloists. But he goes on and says, by this it is not to be understood that solos are entirely excluded. But solo singing should never predominate to such an extent as to have the greater part of the liturgical chant executed in that manner. The solo phrase should have the character of it or hint of a melodic projection and be strictly bound up with the rest of the choral composition. 
So again, we're not talking about uh, Brunhilde with the, you know, with the horned helmet and the spear up in the choir loft singing some great aria. We're not talking about that kind of thing here. He says, no, no, we don't have that solo. As though the individual is putting on a performance. Um, if you go into the churches of Rome, notably, if you, if you were to go into the San Clemente, the Basilica San Clemente, along the Via dei Giovanni uh, in Laterano, on that beeline between the Colosseum and St. John Lateran Basilica, um, you come to the church which they say has the most true, the most perfect um, form of the basilica that remains in Rome today. And um, it's ancient, well, it's so ancient, in fact, that the original church uh, was already standing on that spot in the, in the 300s, in the 4th century. This, this church was built and uh, you can still actually go down into the excavations that were carried out by the Dominicans in the 1800s. And you can see the frescoes on the walls in the third century, in the fourth century basilica. It's quite impressive. And then that, that basilica, after 1100, after, well, it would have been about 800 years or so, became rather unsteady. unsteady. And so what they did was they, they filled in that level and they used it as a foundation to build an 11th century edifice over the top. That's actually what you enter now. Um, they have nonetheless retained as much as they could of the 4th century basilica. And you're, you're standing there on, the, on that pavement in the 11th century basilica, and it has that waviness that you know, shows that the antiquity of it all, the tiles there. But you see these arches coming out of the wall and dis disappearing back into the, into the floor. They're, they're actually rising out of the floor and disappearing into the floor. You realize you're looking at the tops of the arches of the 4th century basilica, and now you're standing up on that level. But they kept those arches in those walls as part of the foundation. So you walk over to them, you put your hand, and you say, I'm, I'm actually putting my hand against the, 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 an archway of a 4th century basilica here. And, uh, and the, the beautiful mosaic in the apse is spectacular. And it was actually brought up from the 4th century basilica. So what you're seeing there is the magnificent artwork um, of, well, the cross as the tree of paradise, the tree of life. Uh, San Clemente, it's one of my favorite places in Rome. You'd never guess it, by, but, but it is. Um, but you walk into the atrium, and they have the fountain in the middle, and that, that's the true basilica style, and you, style, and you walk through there. But the reason why I bring it up is because what, one of the things they brought up from down below the 4th century basilica is the scola, <clears throat> the scola cantorum. They actually brought up the, the parts uh, where the choir of monks or canons or, you know, the, those attached to the basilica, the clergy of the basilica would actually sit there in that school and they would sing the divine office there. They actually brought that up and reconstructed it when they built, the, built this 10th, uh, 11th century basilica. So when you're standing there, you're actually looking at something that goes all the way back to that far and shows the liturgical practice of the church with the clergy of the church singing the divine praises um, of the, the psalms and the hymns and so on as we would sing the divine office even today. 
they have the ambos there, right? The, the lecterns that were used to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim the, uh, the epistle. A beautiful piece, very, not only ancient, but very venerable. And uh, this would have been the choir of that church. These are the ones who would have been singing at the divine office, singing at the mass. The clergy attached to it. That was their job, as it were, to sing the divine praises there. We've come a long way from that, you know. Um, and this is what St. Pius X meant to address here. And that's why he says what he says. This is what brought it to mind here. He talks about, you realize that, yes, the, the celebrant, the priest at a sung mass sings. He's not accompanied by the organ. He sings certain parts. The deacon, the subdeacon. But he says the rest is by a, the choir. And, and that is actually taking the place, as it were, even today, of the choir of Levites, as he calls them, the clergy, right? They're the original ones who were singing uh, in the churches uh, for the divine, divine ceremonies here. And he says, solos are not excluded, but you have to still maintain that choral or choir presence there. Um, but he goes on, and I'm sorry, I've got to wrap this up pretty quickly. He says, on the same principle, this is what's going to raise some hackles here, on the same principle, it follows that singers in church have a real liturgical office, and that therefore, women being incapable of exercising such a real liturgical office cannot be admitted to form part of the choir. That's what St. Pius then says, right? And uh, <clears throat> he says, whenever then it is desired to employ the acute voices of sopranos and contraltos, these parts must be taken by boys according to the most ancient usage of the church. Now there are those who would say, what? No women in the choirs at the churches? Well, that would wipe out our choirs. There wouldn't be any choirs for the most part. And, uh, but he doesn't stop there, right? He goes on and talks about the kind of men you would allow in the choirs too. And that might exclude uh, some, of the, some of the gentlemen too. Here's what he says. Finally, only men of known piety and probity of life are to be admitted to form part of the choir of a church. And these men should by their modest and devout bearing during the liturgical functions show that they are worthy of the holy office they exercise. It will also be fitting that singers, while singing in church, wear the ecclesiastical habit and surplice. That is basically casting a surplice. But he refers to it as a habit, like a religious habit. And that they be hidden behind gratings when the choir is excessively open to the public gaze. So if you have a choir loft, and the choir can look up and see the singers, they should be behind a grating, even if it's only men, and then only men of proven character. Now, uh, St. Pius X was setting the bar very high here. But we realize in the letter that he followed this up with, <clears throat> letter to the Prefect of Rome, he, he knew that this was going to be a gradual process. It was not something that was going to happen overnight. But he was insisting that it start taking place now. He said, do not take excuses. Make it happen in Rome now. And so, you know, as we, we talk about the Sistine Chapel Choir. They're boys. They're all men, right? Many of them boys, right? We talk about the Vienna Boys Choir. Well, this was actually the idea, to have these, these, the, boyers, the choirs of boys 
who would be singing the divine praises with the, basically, with the clergy, with the monks, and so on. And uh, they would be raising their voices there, and you wouldn't have these mixed choirs. Uh, the ladies should not be offended by that. Um, I think in the course of the St. Church's uh, history, she has made it very clear that in the convents you have choirs of sisters. Okay? Basically, you're talking about the segregation of the choirs according to gender, um, so that with the clergy, the boys would sing, and the religious sisters would sing themselves. And uh, they would have choirs. And yes, that in their religious chapels, their religious houses, they would, they would sing the divine office, and they would sing the divine praises even at the Mass. So the church wasn't saying, you know, that the women could not sing in any way or repress it. Or Again, here he's saying even the men should be behind gratings, and even only the men who have proven their worthiness. But in the, again, in the, <coughs> in the monasteries of nuns and so on, uh, they would be behind, behind the gratings too. That was very normal in those days, right? Uh, that there would be a, a grating there and uh, they would uh, not be prominently featured for everybody to watch. So, uh, I mean, in our own day, people are primed to be offended, but they shouldn't be. Uh, it's, it's our own distorted view of things that leads us to take to, uh, well, be the, the snowflakes of, the, of our day. But uh, one thing I, I should point out, though, that... Um, St. Pius X goes on to talk about what kind of instruments should be permitted or would not be permitted in the church. Uh, it shouldn't uh, surprise us, perhaps, that he, he denounces such frivolous instruments as drums, uh, even bells, he says, um, and the like, uh, but even wind instruments, like a flute or something. He's restricting that. He said you'd have to get the permission of the ordinary even to have a, a flute played in the church or something like that. So he was against the way these things were being employed. The way they were being employed was actually offensive to pious ears. And um, it kind of harkens back to St. Pius V himself. St. Pius V, so many years before Pius X, found the liturgical music to be very offensive. And he was ready to ban, this is in the 1500s, St. Pius V, was ready to ban all polyphony, where you're singing in parts, you know. And it was um, the, great, the great Palestrina who came forward and said, uh, Your Holiness, allow me to compose uh, a mass in, in parts that would be an aid to prayer. Allow me to make the effort uh, that then you can hear and then you can decide what, what you would wish here. And this is St. Pius V and Sixtus V who came after him. And Palestrina composed the Misa Papi Marcelli. And when these popes heard that Mass, notably Pius V, as I understand, he said, this truly is, something, is sacred music that would be consonant with the worship of the Church and be an aid to prayer. And so the great Palestrina used his talent and his art and his, of course, love for God to produce some very, very beautiful pieces, polyphonic pieces, that were beautiful with the beauty of heaven, not just of earth. They were not just a matter of entertainment, they were a matter of aids to prayer. So Palestrina kind of saved the day back in the 1500s. 
But now we'd come to a point where that had become so degenerate in St. Pius X's time that he was coming down very, very firmly and restricting all that stuff. Now, Pope Pius XII, in 1953, uh, wrote about the question of women's voices being included in the choirs, and he, you might say, relaxed the rigor of St. Pius X. After World War II, and uh, trying to revitalize the, you know, uh, the practice of the faith in these war-torn and very heavily damaged countries, um, Papias XII relaxed this, and he began to allow more of women's voices in church. But he also was very cautionary not to let it become a form of entertainment, not to let it degenerate into that kind of opera house uh, theatrical thing. So one could also go to Pope Pius XII, 1953, and his, again, precision that he wrote about it in 1958, to see what he was writing about the place of, notably, women's voices in the choirs, especially of parish churches. Um, but in Rome, it's still, it's still so, or it, at least it was up until the Novus Ordo, that the higher voices of the polyphony would be would be carried by boys, and they would be in cassock and surplus very often. Uh, the choir master himself would be, that it would be actually a men's choir, and that there would be uh, actually de dedicated women's choirs also in the religious houses, too. Uh, where people, again, would be allowed to go at times and attend Mass and fulfill obligation to attend Mass. Um, so anyway, uh, does that answer the question somewhat? I think so. Okay, okay I'm sorry to be prolix in this, mm. but uh, Pius X uh, considered it to be such a serious question, uh, followed up by Pope Pius XII, that in light of what the Novus Ordo has done, it shows us what an abomination that modern liturgy is in the, in the eyes of the traditional Catholic Church, in the eyes of God, even. As uh, Archbishop Vigano recently pointed out. So, I guess if we can take anything from this, we should take the words of St. Pius X and put them, uh, take them very seriously as to what we're trying to accomplish, what we must accomplish in our parish churches to try to restore the sanctity of the sanctuary, and notably by the music that is employed there for the glory of God and to enable us to pray more fervently. Lest God knock the cords and drive us out, <laughs> right? Maybe that's what the Novus Ordo was all about. Maybe that's a matter of God's wrath, yeah. that we were not um, devout as we should have been. Maybe, well, now we learn that lesson. Now we return asking God to give us another, another chance, as it were, yeah. uh, to bring that sanctity and devotion back. Well, let us pray for that. And uh, mm -hmm. Father, thank you for all of that. Thanks for everything that you do. And I appreciate your time and all of our viewers do as well. And all of our, you know, all of our uh, emailers and questioners do as well. They, they love your, all of your responses. So uh, thank you very much. Well, they have great fortitude. <laughs> thank you, Father. That. Thank you, Tom. God bless yeah. you. Well. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe.
Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.